Chapter Three, Riding the Tornado of the Lost City. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Lost City by Joseph E. Badger Jr. Chapter Three, Riding the Tornado. Whether it was that the airship itself had increased its speed during those few moments of dense obscurity, or whether the madly whirling winds had taken a retrograde movement at that precise time could only be a matter of conjecture, but the ominous fact remained. The aerostat was fairly over the danger line, and, despite all efforts being made to the contrary, was being drawn directly towards that howling, crashing, thundering mass of destructive energy. Already the inmates felt themselves being sucked from the flying machine, and instinctively tightened their grip upon handrail and floor, gasping and oppressed, breath failing, and ribs apparently being crushed in by that horrible pressure. "'Hold fast! For life!' pantingly screamed Professor Featherwit, as he strove in vain to check or change the course of his aeromotor, now for the first time beyond control of that master hand. A few seconds of soul-trying suspense, during which the flying machine shivered from stem to stern, almost like a human creature in its death agony, creaking and groaning, with shrill sounds coming from those expanded curved wings, as the suction increased, then— a merciful darkness fell over those sorely imperiled beings, and the vessel itself seemed about to be overwhelmed by an avalanche of sand and dirt and mixed debris. Then came a dizzy, rocking lurch, followed by a shock, which nearly cast uncle and nephews from their frantic holds, and the airship appeared to be whirled end for end, cast hither and yon, wrenched and twisted as though all must go to ruin together. A blast, as of superheated air, smote upon them one moment, while in the next they were whirled through an icy atmosphere, then tossed dizzily to and fro, as their two frail vehicles spun upward as though on a journey to the faraway stars. A shrieking blast of wind served to briefly clear away the choking dust, affording the trio a fleeting glimpse of their immediate surroundings hurtling sticks and stones, splintered tops of trees, shrubs with wildly lashing roots freshly torn from the bed of years, all madly spinning through a blinding, scorching, freezing mass of crazily battling winds, the different currents twining and weaving in and out as so many hideous serpents at play. A moment thus, then that horrid uproar grew still more deafening, and the airship was whirled high and higher in a dizzy dance, those luckless creatures clinging fast to whatever their frenzied hands might clutch, feeling that this was the end of all. Further sight was denied them. They were powerless to move a limb, save as jerked painfully by those shrieking currents. Breath was taken away, and an enormous weight bore down upon them, threatening to produce a fatal collapse through their ribs giving way. Upward whirled the flying machine, 
powerless now as those wretched beings within its cunning shape, smitten sharply here and there by some of those ascending missiles, yet without receiving material injury, until a last shivering lurch came, ending in a sudden fall. A dizzying swoop downward, but not to death and destruction, for the aerostat alighted easily upon what appeared to be a sort of air-cushion, and though unsteady for a brief space, then settled upon an even keel. "'Cling fast! For life!' huskily gasped the professor, unwittingly repeating the caution which had last crossed his lips, which he had ever since been striving to enunciate, faithful to his guardianship over these, his sole surviving relatives. "'I don't—where are we?' Waldo lifted his head to peer with half-blind eyes about them, in which action he was imitated by both brother and uncle, but, for a brief space, they were none the wiser. All around the aeromotor rose a wall of whirling winds, seemingly impenetrable, apparently within reach of an extended arm, changing color with each fraction of a second, hideously beautiful, yet never twice the same in blend or mixture. A hollow, strangely-sounding roar was perceptible, one instant coming as from the far distance, then from nigh at hand causing the airship to quiver and tremble, as a sentient being might in the presence of a torturing death. "'Look! Upward!' panted Bruno a few seconds later, his face as pale as that of a corpse, in spite of the dirt and blotches of sticky mud with which he had been peppered during that dizzy whirl. Mechanically, his companions in peril obeyed, catching breath sharply as they saw a clear sky and yellow sunshine far above, so awfully far they were that it seemed like looking upward from the bottom of an enormously deep well. And then the marvellous truth flashed upon the brain of Phaeton Featherwit, almost robbing him of all power of speech. Still he managed to jerkily ejaculate, "'We're inside, riding the tornado itself!' Then those whirling winds closed quickly above them, shutting out the sunlight, hiding the heavens from their view, enclosing that vehicle and its occupants, as they were borne away into unknown regions, within the very heart of the tornado itself." Yet incredible as it surely seems, no actual harm came to the trio or to their flying machine, as it swayed gently upon its airy cushion, although from every side came the horrid roar of destruction, while ever and anon they could glimpse a wrestling tree or torn mass of shrubbery, whizzing upward and outward to be flung far away beyond the vortex of electrical winds. Once more came that awful sense of suffocation— that painted pall closed down upon them, robbing their lungs of air, one instant fairly crisping their hair with a touch of fire, only to send an icy chill to their veins a moment later. In vain they struggled, fighting for breath as a fish gasps when swung from its native element. While that horrid pressure endured, men, youth, and boy alike, were powerless. Again the pall lifted— 
folding back and blending with those madly circling currents, once again affording a glimpse of yonder faraway heavens so marvellously clear and bright and peaceful in seeming. Weakened by those terrible moments, Bruno and Waldo lay gasping, trembling, faint of heart and ill of body, yet filling their lungs with comparatively pure air. Pity there was so little of it to win. Professor Featherwit still had thought and care for his nephews rather than himself alone, and pantingly spoke as he dragged himself to the snug locker, where many important articles had been stowed away. "'Here! Suck life! Compressed air!' With husky cries the brothers caught at the tubes offered, the method of working which had so often been explained by their relative. Once more the tube became a chamber, and that horrid force threatened to flatten their bodies, but the worst had passed, for that precious cylinder now gave them air to inhale, and they were enabled to wait for the lifting of the cloud once more. Thanks to this important agency, strength and energy, both of body and of mind, now came back to the air-voyagers, and after a little they could lift their heads to peer around them, with growing wonder and curiosity. There was little room left for doubting the wondrous truth, and yet belief was past their powers during those first few minutes. All around them whirled and sped those maddened winds, curling and twisting, rising and falling, mixing in and out as though some unknown power might be weaving the webs of destiny. Now dull, now brilliant, never twice the same, but ever changing in color as in shape, while stripes and zigzags of lightning played here and there with terrifying menace, those walls of wind held an awfully fascinating power for uncle and nephews. From every side came deadened sounds which could bear but a single interpretation. The tornado was still in rapid motion, was still tearing and rending, crushing and battering, leaving dire destruction and ruin to mark its advance, and these were the sounds that recorded its ugly work. In goodly measure revived by the compressed air, which was regulated in flow to suit his requirements by a device of his own, Professor Featherwit now looked around with something of his wonted admiration, heedless of his own peril for the moment, so great was his interest in this marvellous happening. So utterly incredible was it all that, during those first few minutes of rallying powers, he dared not express the belief which was shaping itself, gazing around in quest of still further confirmation. He took note of the windy walls about their vessel, rising upward for many yards, irregular in shape and curvature here and there, but retaining the general semblance of a tube with flaring top. He peered over the edge of the basket, to draw back dizzily as he saw naught but yeasty, boiling, seething clouds below, a veritable air-cushion which had served to save the pet of his brain from utter destruction at the time of falling within. Yet there was no longer room for doubt. They were actually inside the distorted balloon, so dreaded by all residents of the tornado pelt. "'What is it, uncle?' huskily asked Bruno, likewise rallying under that beneficial influence. "'Where are we now?' "'Where I'm wishing mighty hard we wasn't, anyhow!' 
contributed Waldo, with something of his usual energy, although, judging from his face and eyes, the youngster had suffered more severely than either of his comrades in peril. Professor Featherwit broke into a queerly sounding laugh as he waved his free hand in exultation before speaking. "'Where no living being ever was before us, my lads, riding the tornado, like a—' <laughs> The airship gave an awkward lurch just then, and down went the little professor to thump his head heavily against one corner of the locker. Swaying drunkenly from side to side, then tossing up and down, turning in unison with those fiercely whirling clouds, the aero-motors seemed at the point of wreck and ruin. Desperately the trio clung to the lifelines, clenching teeth upon the life-giving tubes, as that terrible pressure increased, so much that it seemed impossible for the human frame to longer resist. Fortunately, that ordeal did not long endure, and again relief came to those so sorely oppressed. A brief gasping, sighing, stretching as the aerostat resumed its level position, merely rocking easily within that partial vacuum, and then Waldo huskily suggested, "'Looks like the blame thing was sick at the stomach.' No doubt this was meant for a feeble attempt at choking, but Professor Featherwood took it for earnest and made quick reply. "'That is precisely the case, my dear lad, and I am greatly joyed to find that you are not so badly frightened, but that you can assist me in taking notes of this wondrous happening, to think that we are the ones selected for—' "'I say, Uncle Phaeton.' "'Well, my lad?' "'If this thing is really sick at the stomach—' When will it erupt? I'd give a dollar and a half to just get out of this, science or no science, notes or no notes at all. Patience, my dear boy, gravely spoke the little man of science, busily studying those eddying currents like one seeking a fairly safe method of extrication from peril. It may come far sooner than you think, and with results more disastrous than feeble words can tell. We surely are a burden such as a tornado must be wholly unaccustomed to, and I really believe these alternations are spasmodic efforts of the cloud itself to vomit us forth, hence you were nearer right than you thought in making use of that expression. Just then came a rush of icy air, and Bruno pantingly cried, "'I'm swelling up like Aesop's bullfrog!' End of chapter 3